This year, I'm a part of three secret Santas and it's becoming hard to keep track <laughs> of how many gifts I need to buy for these people. Write it down. I literally have to go back to the to the website to like check who I need to get and for like which part of my life they belong in and what the budget is for each of them. Which part of my life? For real. Welcome to Hidden Among Us. I'm your host, Chris. And this is Honda. And welcome to episode 68. Let me just tell you a story. So on Friday, I had to go to the post office. Now listen, I have never been to the post office. Okay. I have I have never been to the post office to mail a letter, like a parcel before. <laughs> and I had to mail a parcel to one of my Santees. So I was like, I have no idea. I literally for a week was doing research and oh asking God. around like what to do. Like if you have never ever like sent a parcel out, like what to do. And then my sister told me that apparently at post offices, you can go there, bring the stuff, and then you can actually pack it into a box and then you send it from there. So you don't have to buy a box first, like, you don't have to buy your own from, I don't know, Shopee or whatever. So I was like, okay, great. That, let, let's go there. But then my sister also told me that the only place that she's been to that has this service was the sing post at um, Paseris. You know, the big sing post building, the official one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm like, there's no way I'm going all the way there. Like, what am I going to do going all the way from one end of Singapore to the other? So I did more research. Turns out any post office, like it has to be a post office. Like anyone, any post office in Singapore has the service where you can like go there and pack it into a box because they have boxes there. So anyway, the one we pick is at Canberra Community Club. So we go there and my cousin and I get off and we attempt to go find this post office in Canberra Community Club. Um, We randomly take a turn in this community club and end up at the area where people get vaccinated. <laughs> and like, how do we get out of here? So we were like walking and we we're trying to avoid all the, the vaccination stuff because we were like, don't make eye contact. If not like, I don't know, maybe they think we're suspicious or they, they think we're like anti-vaxxers or something. Oh my God. And then we get lost, right, on the first floor of Canberra Community Club, Canberra CC. We've never been there, we get lost. And then we try to search for the elevator and we can't find it. So we were like, okay, fine, we have to take the stairs. We finally take the stairs, you go to the post office. And the post office situation is a whole other thing, right? So anyway, I'm at the post office. I have no idea what to do because I've never, like, mailed out a parcel before. I don't know what I'm doing there. There's, like, a family beside me who know what they're doing. They're, like, packing things up and, like, mailing it off, like, super quickly. And, like, the the mom keeps turning to look at me because I think I look completely lost. So this takes about, like, five, ten minutes. And I finally gather up the courage to go ask the staff there. Meanwhile, my brother and my other cousin come up. And they were like, oh, 
we found the elevator super quickly. Like, we walked in and it was there. And I was like, how? Because my other cousin and I got lost. And we were, like, walking around the first floor trying to find the elevator to get up to the second floor. So when I tell you that I'm hopeless with directions, Mm -hmm. I really mean I'm hopeless with directions. And I don't think if I were to do a solo trip anywhere in Singapore that I would survive it because I would definitely get lost. Listen, it got so bad that at one point, right, we were walking to, like, find the stairs at least and, like, in front of us was the police station and I literally turned to my cousin and I was like, if we get any more lost than this, we can just go to the police and be like, hi, we are lost. We don't know what we are doing and they might might help us. <laughs> and my friend no is speechless. <laughs> the woman was too stunned to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying. Meanwhile, I'm excited to solo travel. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Honda is solo. You're technically solo traveling, right? Yeah. Like, I'm honestly, I prefer to go by myself than with people. But if it's people I'm close to, then fine. But like, it's not so like go by myself. <laughs> but yeah, why? It's normal. I'm, like I'm just amazed that there are people like you who have their lives somewhat together, that you can go around places in a new country that you've never been to by yourself. Meanwhile, me, in my own country, I can't even make it to point A to point B without going through C, D, E, and F. So... I don't think that analogy was correct, but everyone gets it. It's A to B, right? <laughs> a to B without going through C, E, and F. What do you mean? C, E, and F is not even C, E, and F. Stop. <laughs> I, I watched too much of the latest CSI where all the characters <laughs> randomly just say things. Like, tell me. What was that quote I said? Um, you're not ready for the whirlpool some shit I don't know the characters in the new CSI just randomly say things and they don't make sense there's no connection between dialogue <laughs> so it feels like people are just like saying random quotes for no reason there's these two characters are like this awkward awkward how do you call it like tension Ellie and Josh yeah, I'm like... Mm. They're, they're meant to be, like, romantically interested in each other. Okay, the thing the thing is that's cute about it is Josh is meant to be, like, the older, more experienced guy and he has, like, this little, like, crush or whatever, this, like, younger newbie that is super passionate. And I think it's meant to parallel Grissom and Sarah when they were in their seasons because you know that was the same thing that happened but it's just that (laughs) it's not working because there's it's not like a built-up tension like the very first episode that we're introduced with both of them it's already established that they sort of have an interest in each other but Ellie is not available because she has her own boyfriend and she 
and she has strict boundaries where she doesn't want to date like a a co-worker right but they have mm-hmm. this still like tension with each other and I think the show would have benefited if at the beginning they don't have this tension but it's just built up throughout the season as they work together anyway either that or like really plunge a dagger into my heart and make it like a one-sided thing like josh likes ellie but she has no interest in him so he has to give all like the forlorn looks her way and look upset when she talks about her boyfriend and introduce the boyfriend early in the season so we see what he looks like that would have been chef's kiss but the writers decided to do whatever they're doing right now and it's not really working that great, but okay. Yeah, I think a lot of shows, like, they don't really invest anymore. So it's just really Yeah, great. I feel like nowadays, in terms of romance, and me, I love romance, okay? I am super, super picky about my romances. But nowadays, a lot of them like to have established couples and like yeah. if you're if you're building a romance, having an established couple or a couple with a history makes it a lot harder to actually write the romance later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, the K drama I'm watching has like this. I think it's more like a friends to lovers kind of plot, I guess. Oh, happiness, happiness. happiness. Yeah, that. That couple, like, I don't really like romance stuff, but that couple is quite cute. Because I like the girl. Mm. I like her attitude. Yeah. She's, like, badass. I only watched one mm. episode. I'm just assuming they went with that for the rest of the season. <laughs> but, like, he really, he gives her that puppy dog look. It's quite cute. Aww. It's hard to imagine him... Oh, wait, no, actually, no, I watched an entire show where he was giving the puppy dog look to, like, the female love interest, like, the entire time. But now he's infected. Uh, spoilers. I know you're not going to continue it, so. No, it's spoilers to anyone listening <laughs> who's watching. I'm sorry to all of you. <laughs> I mean, it was bound to happen that like, either one of them. I know. It, it's, listen, they're, like, the main characters and like the main like love storyline if the show didn't have one of them get infected or in like mortal danger it it just doesn't work so it's just logical for one of them to get infected so it's mm-hmm. fine I was completely prepared for it anyway but that uh, yeah if you want to watch cute couples you should watch happiness Okay, shall we delve into our story? <laughs> kind of our, yeah, delve into our case, which is an interesting case that I once again completely stumbled upon purely on accident because that's how I stumble upon cases nowadays. Yeah, so today I'll be covering the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. What have you heard of this mm-hmm. before? I don't think so. Yeah, neither did I. And like, reading about 
I mean, covering this case, like reading about it is actually quite interesting because um, I guess the investigation process made this a lot more complicated than mm-hmm. a lot of the other cases that we've covered. Because a lot of the other cases that we've covered um, oftentimes to define the evidence, they are able to catch a culprit soon after. But for this case, it's actually still considered an unsolved case. Dun dun. It's my first unsolved oh. case, guys. <laughs> yeah, so... I'll get into the investigative process later in the story. And then I guess we can sort of understand why it's considered an unsolved case even until today. Yes. So on Monday, June 13th, 1977, at 6 a.m., Carla Wilhite, a camp counselor at Camp Scott at Mays County, Oklahoma, would stumble upon a strange trail of sleeping bags leading to the girls' shower 150 yards from the tent these girls should have been staying in. Ten-year-old Doris Milner's body was found atop her sleeping bag, and upon seeing her body, um, Carla Wilhite immediately ran to get help. Eventually, the camp director and a nurse came to the site of the sleeping bags, where they would open the other two bags and find the bodies of eight-year-old Laurie Farmer and nine-year-old Michelle Goose. All three girls had been raped and then murdered. Laurie Farmer and Michelle Goose had been bludgeoned to death, while Doris Milner had been strangled. After they had been murdered, their bodies had been shoved into their sleeping bags and then left on the trail. So some background information about Camp Scott. The camp had been in operation since 1928, so it's been in operation for quite some time, and was two miles from Locust Grove and 50 miles from Tulsa's Girl Scout headquarters. The 410-acre campsite sat between Snake Creek and Spring Creek just off Highway 82. Sunday, June 12th was the first day of the camp. So buses pulled up at the campsite from the headquarters. So what the buses would do was they would pick up the girls from the headquarters um, and then they would drive them to the campsite. So buses pulled up at the campsite where wide-eyed and excited campgoers boarded off, getting ready for their two-week adventure. One of the campers was Denise Milner. So one of our victims. This was Denise's first time at the camp and she was the only African-American girl there. She was evidently nervous as this was her first camping experience as well. So recounting their meeting, Michelle Hoffman, who had been a camp counsellor in June of 1977, said that she went to greet Denise and her mother and to offer some encouragement. Um, Denise had already been homesick. So in the interview, she even mentions that um, the mom said like, hey, can you let her call tomorrow? And mm. and um, Michelle was like, mm, can't, can't really do that. Because the whole point is, if they give in to these requests of letting the girls like call their home, they're never going to be independent and it doesn't really solve the issue of homesickness. It's just going to feel mm-hmm. worse. Yeah. 
So the campsite was divided into units, each consisting of several campuses, tents, and counselors. So essentially, they're like divided into sections, and then each section has the campuses, tents, as well as like a counselor's tent. And um, each unit was named after Native American tribes, which is very problematic, and I acknowledge that. Yes. Um, so as I said, the campers were picked up at Tulsa headquarters before being driven on an hour and a half long bus ride to the campsite itself. Eventually, the 130 campers, this is a lot of campers, would arrive on Yeah. We we conducted a camp once and how many people do we have? Like 30? Less than that? I mean it- in the end, we were in charge of like less than that, I think. Is it 30? Yeah. <laughs> I think it was less than 30, but is it even that was so difficult? Well, we were stressed. <laughs> Precisely. And this is like 130 campers. Oh gosh. So these 130 girls arrived on, sa- on Sunday afternoon, um, after which they went to their allocated units and tents and dropped off their belongings. The tents were arranged in a horseshoe shape with the last one being closest to the bathroom and kitchen and like the furthest from the counselor's tent. Denise, as mentioned earlier, was nervous and so Hoffman walked her to her tent, which was tent number eight, Kiowa. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Kiowa right, but yeah, it's named after a Native American tribe and I'm so sorry if I <laughs> pronounced it wrong. Yes. At the tent, um, the both of them would meet Laurie and Michelle. I know it's confusing. There are two Michelles. One is Michelle Hoffman and then one is Michelle um Michelle Goose, right? Yes, Michelle Goose. Mm. Michelle Goose was the victim. Michelle Hoffman was a camp counselor at the time. So after Denise met Laurie and Michelle, the three of them actually hit it off quite quickly despite all three of them being they were described as like quiet girls um laurie was the youngest girl in the entire camp and had been excited to meet new friends in fact laurie's mother had initially been unsure if she wanted to send laurie to camp scott or to another camp that was sponsored by the ymca but in the end, she chose Girl Scout Camp. And later on, the mother will come out to say that it was like the worst decision that she's ever made. Mm. Michelle, on the other hand, had attended the camp the year before and was excited to be back. She was described as athletic and active and loved the outdoors. So essentially everything that I am not. <laughs> uh, that night, there had been a thunderstorm and the three girls were in their tents writing letters to their families. So this was the letter written by Laurie. Dear mom and dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, we're just getting ready to go to bed. It's 7.45. We're at, the, we're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Goose and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started to rain on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I wouldn't wait to write. We're all writing writing letters now because there's hardly anything else to do with love, Laurie. 
After writing the letter, the girls would fall asleep. But the next morning, they would unfortunately not be waking up. As I mentioned earlier, the three girls had been brutally raped and murdered. One of the girls had even been sodomized. The camp was promptly shut down and the authorities called. The remaining campers were all sent back home. Um, in one of the articles I read, right, apparently there was controversy because before even calling the authorities, apparently the, I think the camp director, yes, they called their lawyers first instead of the police. Oh, that's shitty. That okay. is so shitty. Well, it actually reminds me of how to get away with murder. A lot of the people call their lawyers first. Yeah, and then the officers would be like, why did you call your lawyer first instead of, like, calling the police? But it wouldn't make sense. The priority is protecting themselves instead of, like, you know, the the kids under their care. Yeah, essentially that's what it looked like. So that's one of the controversies that this camp was embroiled in. Police would find that the girls had been murdered sometime between 2 and 4 a.m. in their own tents. Um, in their own tent. The tent's floor was covered in blood and it appeared that their killer or killers had tried to clean up the crime scene. So they actually found blood-soaked towels as well as a mattress. And they believed that their killer or killers had used these towels and the mattress to soak up the blood. Mm. And essentially, after murdering the girls in the tent, they had taken out the um the, the girls in the sleeping bags. So they had murdered them, stuffed them in the sleeping bags, and then taken them out and then put them along the trail. So the murder mm. scene was the tent itself, not outside. Um, they also found a footprint outside the tent while a different shoe print was found inside. At the scene, investigators would find fingerprints on the girls' bodies, a cord, duct tape, and a red torchlight that had been left on one of the bodies with bloody fingerprints on the lens. During investigations, they found that a counsellor had heard moaning sounds at 1.30 in the morning and had gone to investigate, but had been unable to locate the source of the sound. A camper in nearby tent number 7 said she had awoken to a flashlight shining on her face at around 2am and another camper claimed to have heard a scream at 3 in the morning with another saying she heard someone crying, saying, Mama, Mama. Another witness, a landowner, said that he heard quite a bit of traffic on a road near the camp between 2 and 3 a.m. So all this looks like they had a lot of evidence, right? Mm -hmm. But this case would actually be quite difficult to investigate. So interestingly, two months before the murder, so somewhere around April, a camp counsellor had discovered that her belongings had been ransacked and her donuts had been stolen. Oh no, the donuts. <laughs> so this has happened during an on-site training session. And since we planned the camp before, we know what an on-site training session is. Essentially, it's like when you go to the place to scout the area and then make sure that the activities you 
do there are like safe and can be done. So the donuts have been stolen, but the box had been left behind. So inside the empty box, she would find a terrifying handwritten note reading, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. And signed off with the killer. That is... Interesting. Yeah, so so, so ominous. Allegedly, mm. the note here also talks about, I think, Martians or something as well. Uh, yeah, but okay. either way, the camp director saw this note and he was like, listen, this has to be a prank. So mm. they threw it away and they didn't really think much about it. And then in June, this happened. The police brought in sniffer dogs who eventually found a crowbar. And on June 16th, the authorities revealed to the public that they had found the murder weapon. But this is where things get quite messy. So district attorney Sid Wise denied also very publicly that the murder weapon was found and that there were no suspects at the time. But during these investigations, so at the time where this was, um, the crowbar was being found, was found, it was widely believed that the killer was a man named Jean Leroy Hart. And I will delve more on him later. So Sheriff Glenn Weaver had been very, very, very sure that it was Hart. But his claim was disputed by the district authority, um, Sid Wise, who claimed that there was actually more than one suspect. So Sheriff Weaver actually said that there was only one suspect in mind, which was Hart. But the district authority, the district authority, the district attorney was like, no, it's not just one guy. It's more than one guy. Furthermore, the murder weapon would eventually be said to be an axe that had been taken from the camp. So double confusion. So it wasn't a crowbar. It was an axe. 10 days later, the sniffer dogs would eventually lead investigators to a nearby cave. At the cave, they would find a flashlight battery, glasses which may have been stolen from the camp, and photos of women. On the wall of the cave, the words, the killer was here, bye-bye fools, 77-6-17. What does this number mean? Oh, it's it's the date. 17th of June, oh, 77. Okay. I know. Listen, Americans, why do y'all write it as year, month, date, day? Like, why? Why can't it just be day, month, year? Like, the rest of the world. Like, why? She likes to be special. Like, how do you speak <laughs> So I was reading like acres and like miles just now. I was like, okay. So here's the thing about this cave, right? This cave was actually near Jean Hart's childhood home and the images of women were actually linked back to him. So now I'll just delve into Jean Hart. So who was this man? Born on November 27, 1943, Jean Leroy Hart had been an inmate on the run from the Mays County Jail. He had been convicted of kidnapping and and raping two pregnant women as well as he was charged with four counts of burglary. 
10 months after the murders, the police actually received a tip that Hart was in a cabin in Cherokee County. He was eventually apprehended on April 6th, 1978. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, we will dis- go through that later on, Hart was eventually acquitted by the jury, so he was found innocent. Um, he was still sentenced to jail for his prior crimes, the kidnapping and raping of the women in 1979, and would eventually pass away from a heart attack after lifting weights and jogging for an hour. So he passed it. He passed away at age 35. I know it sounds wild. He was like doing exercise in prison, and then he like passed away from a heart attack. So he was quite young. Yeah, he was really young. But this, the trial of Gene Hart was also one without, like, with a lot of controversy. So the police had actually believed that the local Cherokee County had been sheltering him. So it actually took 40 FBI agents and, like, roughly $1.25 million in, like, the search for him to eventually get him arrested. Um, But the members of the American Indian movement felt that the police were trying to find a scapegoat. The -hmm. trial was extremely racially divided with the Cherokee community standing behind Hart. During the trial, the prosecution argued that Hart's glasses were stolen from the camp and hair on the duct tape resembled his. Though his defense would say that the glasses were taken from his previous case and that the sheriff planted the rest. So the defense continued to argue that Sheriff Weaver planted evidence and then they brought their own witness, which was a waitress named Dean Boyd. Um, She would testify that she saw a nervous man at her diner 15 miles from the camp on the morning of June 13th, identifying him as a man named William Stevens. So Stevens had been con- had been a convicted rapist and was even seen by one of the campers on campgrounds before June 13. So allegedly he was seen on campgrounds. One of Stevens's friends even said that he lent him his torchlight, which was later found at the scene. While the two were drunk in October 1977, Stevens allegedly admitted to have killed the girls. So having been raised in the area, he knew when the camp would be held and placed it under surveillance. Using tactics learned during his time in Vietnam, he chose the most isolated tent. He cut a slit in the duct tape um, that he wrapped around the torch so that it would not alert anyone, went in and murdered the girls. Though Stevens would come out and say like, hey, I didn't do any of these things. Um, blood and semen samples were eventually taken by both Stevens and his friend, and they were eventually ruled out. Meanwhile, a jury of six men and six women would uh, would acquit Gene Hart. In 1989, the FBI tested a semen sample they found on a pillowcase found near the bodies. Three of the five probes matched Hart's DNA, but it was ultimately inconclusive. In 2008, the authorities attempted to test the DNA again, but the sample had degraded too much to create a profile. DNA mm. also revealed, um, the DNA that they found on the pillowcase also revealed to be partially female DNA. And 
um they determined that it didn't come from the two murder victims but they were unable to like they were unable to conclusively say that it came from the third so two of the girls were ruled out but the third one they mm. weren't sure if this could possibly be her dna but it is theorized that there could have possibly been a woman present at the time of the killings yeah in 1989, a man named Reverend Gerald Manley contacted the authorities saying he believed four men were responsible for the murders. So the authorities um, investigated uh, Reverend Gerald Manley's claims but were eventually unable to link the men to the crime. But this is where it gets interesting. So Manley claimed that four men who needed his Christian influence or whatever that mean, went to the camp with him and this was when he saw the dead bodies. Um, the police were unable to corroborate the story, but this is where it gets interesting, okay? Because Manly passed a lie detector test mm-hmm. and while under hypnosis, he repeated the same story. Mm. So it's like, how did he manage to pass these things? Is it like he believed this narrative so much that it's embedded into his consciousness? I don't know. There's a lot of question marks with this case. Mm. So till today, this case has been considered as unsolved, um, though it is widely believed that Gene Hart was the one who committed it. Michelle Gusa's father um, eventually went on to help the state pass the Oklahoma Victims' Bill of Rights and start the Oklahoma Crime Victims' Compensation Board. Laurie Farmer's mother would find... What is the grammar here? Laurie Farmer's mother would eventually found the Oklahoma Chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, which is a support group. So yes, this is the kind of story that like we see in shows like CSI where there is a shit ton of evidence but things just aren't as what they seem. Yeah. Yeah. So until today, no one is really sure who killed these girls. And I find it just very fascinating that there was so much evidence right but it couldn't be linked to anyone and the closest person they got to was Gene Hart but the um the jury eventually found him like not guilty of this crime and it's also fascinating it's also very very interesting that um the three girls' bodies were treated differently. Like two girls were found inside the sleeping bags while one of them was outside on top. Also, the MO is different. Two girls were hmm. um yeah, two girls were one was sodomized, one was strangled, while the other two were bludgeoned to death, which it's just it just seems very like odd 
also personally I don't think one person could have been able yeah. to do this yeah I was thinking it could be multiple it could be multiple also because like precisely that the three bodies were treated so differently and mm. there is no way one person could s- listen this is a camp it was a tent with three girls there is no way you could do it so silently by yeah, yourself right? I mean, even if you just shut them up, you only have two hands. <laughs> Precisely. So how how are you going to keep the other two girls quiet? You know, if you're doing it by right. yourself, like, does that mean you threaten the other two into silence? But even then, it's a bit difficult because the moment you kill one, the other two instinctively will start screaming and that would, you know... Yeah. Cause... Um, attention it will definitely wake up the other tents right so it's just it's very interesting was, also because was there, there no was, camp counselors like patrolling um I think this happened at a time where the camp counselors were asleep this tent was also the furthest from the camp counselors tent and like when they were found at six in the morning, it was when one was when Carla will hide the camp castles doing her rounds. Yeah. Because mm, I don't know, when I was in like younger and when I'm camps, the teachers like they would have a rotation to like, like check. every hour. Yeah, more or less likely. Mm. I don't think but, there'll be a time where there'll be where we were not supervised, especially when I was like when we were younger. Yeah, I think th- th- this camp was also criticized for that. It's the... I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Also, these kids are really young. You have someone as young as nine, eight years old. Yeah, Tori was eight years old. And... Yeah, like, you know, not just external threats, but, like, to make sure the kids are actually behaving and sleeping. Yeah, also, to, to be fair, okay, I didn't add this, but when I said that Michelle Hoffman... Um, one of the camp counselors there. She was only 15 when she was a camp counselor in 77. So I think I think even the camp counselors weren't like the most prepared. I mean you hire 15 year olds to be camp counselors. In I terms mean, of like <laughs> safety and stuff, you also wouldn't want like a 15 year 15 year old girl doing patrolling in the middle of the night. Yeah, I mean, like, from what I see from American shows, like, all these camp counselors, like, they're very young people. Like, you know, like, American Horror Story. Yeah, it's just... I mean, these camps are, like, always the site of, like, slasher films. It's run by, like, horny teenagers, you know, like, horny camp counselors who Mm. don't care about, like, like the kids. But they just want to hook up with, like, the other company. Yeah, but... This one ended up in the tragic death of three young girls. It was so young, eight, nine, and ten. Yeah, it's a brutal death too. Yeah, DNA mm. led to nothing. So mm. then, on top of that, there was the whole mess with, like, the internal politics of the investigative team. Like, how can your DA and your sheriff be at odds so publicly? <laughs> And then on top of that, um, the the racial divide as well. Mm-hmm. 
yeah so it, this this whole case is just a mess and until today these families they yeah they can't they can't find like I mean in 2008 they tried to test DNA again but it had degraded too much so mm. yeah if it was kind of proper conditions maybe yeah and we, we can never get the the story from Hart as well because he passed away yeah so yeah this is the story this is the case of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders what a story mm, you're welcome I am exhausted I feel like I've read that <laughs> so fast halfway through I was like dissociating from the tightness If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and click that follow button on Spotify. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and whatever podcast platform you listen to. And you can follow us on Instagram at Podcast. Share us a message or send us a story if you'd like. You can also email us at hiddenamongustree at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.